Hello and welcome to the Retech Podcast. My name is Stu Pringle and I am your host. I'm on a mission to chat with interesting people who are doing good things in renewables and technology. Why does that matter? Well, without new thinking and innovation as an industry, renewable energy production is not going to hit the lofty goals it has been set. In each podcast, I'll be chatting with people in the industry who are doing their bit to help drive change. So this time we are speaking with Matt Stone, who is the founder of Plus Product Consulting. Matt, hello. Hi, good to be here. Good to have you here. Um, Matt, let's start with a bit of background. Um, can you tell me how you ended up working in the energy sector? Yeah, sure. So I actually went straight into the energy sector from university. So I trained as a software developer and joined General Electric, uh, as was Vetco Gray at the time, uh, as a software developer, and then had a career with them, worked up through energy systems engineering, energy research and development products, and then product management. And uh, towards the end of my time with GE, I was product director for their industrial asset platform, Predix based in Silicon Valley. And then, yeah, so so just kind of cut my teeth completely in the energy sector, I guess is the best way to understand me. Um, and and on, on the applied side of the energy space, so the, the solutions space and the system space. Interesting. And then you set off on your own. You I did. Ago? Yes, yes. <laughs> in January 2020, because I thought, you know, what's the worst that can happen if I go self-employed? Um, um, but yeah, just prior to going self-employed, I just finished uh, leading um, with GoCompare.com. So I moved from General Electric to take a role as product director and then eventually vice president at GoCompare.com. There I was responsible for launching GoCompare's energy switching solutions and we were also working on energy auto switching um, for those of you who remember when when we lived in a an era where it was possible to save money on energy rather than constantly going through the roof (laughs) so we've mentioned the keyword a few times here product and it's it's in your brand name plus product consulting Tell, tell me just a little bit about kind of what you're focuses there in terms of sort of that that product piece that's that's what you're all about isn't it yeah absolutely so i've been a product manager in the energy sector and in other sectors for coming on for 10 years now it's a job that i've always loved doing and for those of the, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with what a product manager does we're basically responsible for um figuring out what people need from a product and then working with various people around a business to try and deliver that thing to um to those users so it's it's a very interesting very varied job that requires juggling many many plates balancing many many things and basically just trying to help the business deliver more value more usable uh products and features and solutions to um to those loyal customers that we are hoping to keep 
Got it. Okay, that was going to be my question. So I'm glad that you've explained what a product manager is. It's not just meetings, coffee, and, and beard scratching. They're actually <laughs> um, ideally it's not. I mean, we're not going to pretend that there's not a little bit of that in there, right? But um, yeah, look, the fact what's it's a it's a it's a it can be a hard to understand job. So if you say to some, if you say to a product manager, what what actually is it that you do all day? What is it that you do? Um, yep. The product manager will pause at that point to assemble their thoughts because they they're often thinking yeah what what is it that i do all day and it's not that they're kind of sitting back and doing nothing all day it's just that they're they they are constantly changing what they have to do to try and deliver um great products so on one day you may be you know sitting down with a product development team trying to worry a problem you know you've got a limitation in the technology or a big bug or you know something's changed in the product and you're not really understanding why and you're having to work with a technical team sure. um you know supporting them trying to figure what that out but that is what's happening on another day you may be requiring to sit down with the executive team um, because they're asking you about the strategy of the product and saying where is this thing going and is it going to generate revenue and when you know, so you're having to shift gears completely from that sort of on the ground thinking to come up to the sort of 30k foot level and have a you know a decent conversation with with leadership. Yeah. On another day, you're out and you're talking to customers and you're trying to understand exactly what it is that they actually need from this thing, so they're going to be, you know, happier to to part cash for it. And in that mode, you're trying to extract, you know, detailed requirements from customers, or at least trying to understand their world a bit more. So the focus is just constantly up and down, back and forward, left and right. And in the middle, you know, the best product managers, what they're capable of doing is distilling that down into something that's easily understood by everybody around the table about exactly what it is that we should be aiming for um, in terms of success, and then helping a development team kind of clear the path towards towards that thing excellent so that explains that hesitation and intake of breath when you get asked that question <laughs> right right because uh, it's so hard to say oh i like you know i, I often envy and and sometimes uh, you know wonder whether i should have stuck with software engineering for example because if somebody asks a software engineer what they do you go i, I develop software right whereas <laughs> you know, Hold on. Yeah. right 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 um and it's just uh it's it's always harder to help people understand the value of product management because it's it's not such an intuitive thing that product managers do um and it often explains why many organizations haven't positioned their product managers correctly for success for example um and even that some organizations don't have product managers at all and they're just missing out on all that value that a product manager can contribute to what they're doing well, Matt, I've already learned stuff here because I've got a good friend who was um, for many years senior product manager in Vodafone and we used to sit over a couple of pints and I used to listen and I would come out of the conversation absolutely none the wiser as to what his job was. So <laughs> this has been cathartic already for me. I don't know if anyone listening will, 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 will feel the same, but for me, I've learned stuff. So thank you very much. Right. Let's move on um, because this is the Retech podcast. I'm keen to speak with you in terms of your views around um, the world of renewables and technology and um let's start with let's start with challenges what, what you know you're you're in this world you've been in it a long time 
I think you've got some awesome experience. What what do you see as some of the kind of the challenges um, sort of the renewables industry is facing at the moment? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time, isn't it? Um, for for lots of reasons. Um, <clears throat> and you know, when I sit back and I look at the energy industry and I think about what the what the overall uh, direction is that it needs to take. I'm reminded of uh, Gartner's hype cycle, if you know that. Certainly um, do. Yeah. So where are uh, we on the roller coaster? Come on. Right, right. Um, and if anybody's not heard that before, and it's it is quite a common thing, so most would have heard of it. But if you haven't, it's worth like looking into because you'll be amazed at the, um, the 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 parallels that you can draw from it. Mm-hmm. And I think <clears throat> where we are on the hype cycle in the energy stru- in the energy industry. And the conversation going on in the energy industry is we've 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 been going up the hype cycle when it comes to talking about the energy transition. So everyone's gotten really excited about the potential for it, um, and you know not just excited but insistent that it happens. Um, and we've reached the top now. So we've said everything that needs to be said, and we're all clear about what needs to happen. But now comes the really hard part of actually achieving that change sure so the big challenge for the energy industry ahead is how do we actually start seeing material movement towards that energy transition how do we get beyond just the rhetoric and the talk and see some heavy changes in how we're consuming how we're generating um and you know just generally moving towards where we all know we need to get to yeah i think there's um particularly in the uk i think it's amazing how little um conversation there's around consumption and you know and right. changing habits and you know I, as uh, guilty as anyone of, of probably not paying enough attention to this but certainly from speaking with friends who live um in europe there seems to be much more of a narrative going on um about you know sort of limiting consumption and, and helping from that point of view but it doesn't seem to really have hit the uk at all which is quite 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 interesting i find it is interesting and and you know we'd be remiss if we didn't observe that um there were lots of people struggling out there just just paying for keeping the lights on yeah um so you know it's 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 really hard right now and i think nobody is happy with where energy consumption is right now both in terms of just cost of daily living um and also just uh, the habits of daily living as well <clears throat> i mean so I, I mean i've got three year olds who find it fun just to switch on every light in the house i feel like i'm had <laughs> a reason you know the cost of living crisis with someone who's three and a half it just it just doesn't really hit home <laughs> not, not something they're thinking about no no no, no. um <clears throat> okay well look, beyond beyond the behavior of toddlers kind of what 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 what, what do you where do you see sort of sort of potential cracks here or, or you know ways that we can change or, or where, where do you see this kind of the, there's some progress happening yeah well you know they say that um necessity is the motherhood of invention right and you know perhaps one way of looking at this is that there's um 
for, for anybody who um, is not super motivated by, um, you know, driving for climate change, you know, changes to, to how we're dealing with the climate, you know, for people who, who, who would, for whatever reason, just don't feel like they want to engage with that topic. The cost of living crisis is absolutely something that everybody is forced to be engaged with. Mm -hmm. Right. So you've got everybody's attention right now. Um, what that means is that meaningful answers to consumption have an opportunity to have a much broader stage than they would have done two, three years ago. So the time has never been better to find solutions that resonate with people and to have people listen and, you know, buy those things up, you know, consume those things because there's an urgency and a need to now that wasn't there before. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think I think um, the the opportunity for um, solutions that, you know, can really help with consumption has not been better than than it is today. Um, and I think the, the businesses that figure out how to how to deliver that value will be the ones that see a, a, a sort of launch out of um, the current economic depression that we've got going on at the moment. Sure. And Matt, tell me, in terms of your professional work, the work you're doing at Plus Product, how much of it are you working with sort of B2C um, brands and how much of it is B2B? Yeah, it's broadly broadly 50-50. So I do work with a lot of B2C where, you know, they're, they're for example, creating um, products that are being consumed. I also work with B2B2C. So that's organizations yeah. that are creating solutions for B2C customers so that so they're in a in a chain of some description and then yeah i'm also working with b2b as well so organizations that are purely about sales um to to other businesses and are you seeing any sort of interesting innovations on either side um, at the moment um yes um obviously i can't talk a huge amount hey, how much this can you share <laughs> i realized that as i, as I asked i just realized how much are you going to be able to say um I'd say that um, the businesses that I work with, the, wh why are they engaging me? They're engaging me because they recognize that their products could be better. They're saying that, um, you know, the thing that we created all those years ago is no longer having the same sort of growth and performance that it, that it used to have. And it's just a natural life cycle of things. And right now we've got a choice about what we do. Do we pour more cash into keeping that thing going? Or do we think about what comes next? And really the question is about how do you get that balance right? How do you maintain your performance whilst also growing the next best thing? And how do you even grow the next best thing anyway? Like what does that even look like? Um, how do you come up with the next great idea? Um, so yeah, typically, a business is engaging me because they're worrying that problem. They're, they're thinking about how they get back into a good mindset of developing and launching new products or new features within an existing product, have that add value to customers, um, and then also contribute to the business in a meaningful way. 
And that was, without going into sort of really down in the weeds, but at a high level, what's, what's sort of your approach and process? You know, if a business comes to you and says, with, with that kind of problem, what, what's, what's the first thing that, that you would do? Yeah, I mean, the first thing, and often the thing that's um, um, undernourished in a business, is just checking with their loyal customers what they actually need. You know, there can be a habit in some organizations that they start with the big idea um, and all of the effort is in developing the next best idea and then they take it to market and then they learn that actually this thing wasn't geared correctly and, and people can't adopt it. And, and um, you know, I say it time and time again, I think it's, it's such, it's, it's such a, a heartbreaking moment when I see that happen because of the effort and the time of so many people that have gone into making that thing and actually just a little bit of time up front understanding and empathizing with that customer, be it B2B or B2C, and understanding how they need to consume that product. Like how does that product fit into their world and solve a, solve a, a problem for them? Understanding that with a little bit more detail means that products can be um, adopted so much more easily. And that's the way to think about it, right? It's not that the customer is not saying that what you're doing is not valuable, particularly existing customers. They're just saying, I can't use this thing um, and it's not solving a big enough uh, challenge in my life for me to justify parting money for it. But here is the real problem that I have. So if you can help me with this problem, you know, that I'm going to be snapping your arm off to try and get that solved. So that's where we'll typically start is, is trying to understand what are those things, those drivers, those needs that, that that users have, and how does that match up with what the business is trying to do to solve those things? Very good point. Always sounds so obvious when someone says go and talk to the customers, but it doesn't seem clear when you're in when you're in it. It's yeah, so it's classic. It's, uh, I, and I do get it because I've been there, right? And it's hard to talk to a user um, sometimes, particularly if you're in a traditional environment that's not used to doing it, right? Because I think a lot of leaders in traditional organizations have gotten to where they are by being a, um, you know, leading with certainty, leading with confidence, shall we say. Um, and it take it can take, a little bit of unlearning of that stuff and, and a relearning of some humility and openness and of the business, not of the individual, but of the culture there of going, actually, we don't know what should come next. And it's really hard to say to some stakeholders who are saying, well, why don't you know what's next? You know, um, so so it's it, it can get pushed to the side because it's it's easier to justify action to those stakeholders than it is to justify questioning and research it's like like the, the sense there that research always has a ticking clock against it and you have to have the answer by the end of it and research is only a thing you do maybe once in three years um to just to answer a few minor questions yeah or it's an annoying expense you know right so do we have to do this yeah yeah, yeah exactly but actually in, you know the interesting thing to observe is that the best product organizations in the world are dedicating and, and permanently researching, like constantly 
it's a daily task it's it's people's jobs inside of the organization just to gather and understand users and their needs not so, to build solutions ju just to understand exactly who they are what they do what drives them and what they need sure if you heard that apple were doing some big research piece you think cool that's the kind of thing they do but yet, yeah if it's not apple somehow it's failing like it's <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And it's particularly hard in the energy sector as well, because typically products in, in this sector have a, a huge lead time. They can do, right? And particularly when we're talking about heavy plant equipment, for example. Um, so so there's, you know, you think about the cycle time in, in energy products. A, lo a lot of them that are hardware-based have a huge R&D cycle, very expensive. And then there's a huge adoption cycle after that where customers need to be convinced that this thing is correct for them to adopt and then the rollout across all those systems as well it's it looks very very different um from the outside compared to a consumer world where you you see an advert for an app you think it's cool you pay for it and it's instantly on your phone right um but you know the good news is that there's still a lot of parallels that you can draw from those best product organizations about how to approach these things um, and it's even possible for hardware organizations to take like a sort of staged approach an iterative approach and what you're basically after is how can you deliver the core value of what this product does to a bunch of users as soon as you can so that they can start working with that thing you know how do you strip away all of the other stuff and just go the, the core thing that's really going to solve that need that you have is this thing. Here's that thing. Use it for a bit. And then tell me how well it's going in terms of applying that thing of solving the problem that you have. Is that what you would call sort of the minimum the MVP, that minimum sort of viable product? Is that do you yes. use the jargon? I like the fact you didn't use the jargon. So I believe. <laughs> yeah, you use the jargon, not me. But it is it is MVP exactly that, um, okay. and um, you know, um, it can, the word minimum can get missed in minimum viable product, and the word yeah. viable can get missed in minimum yeah. viable product, right? Um, so when, let's talk about when minimum viable product is wrong, or, or not being approached correctly. The first one is if it's taking you six months to get to an MVP, that's not an MVP, that's a product, um, and it's a product that you're trying to launch before you've validated that it's something that's going to be useful so it's not minimum in that case the other time that mvp is used is that we go oh you know we'll put something out there that's not quite working yet but it's it's you know it, it's ticking a few boxes on our on our project sheet for example that's not viable right it's not something that a user can use yes. so the way like you've got to kind of tap this thing and, and nurture it uh, and avoid both of those extremes you've got to keep it so that it's uh, coming to market as quickly as possible then also it's got to be something that you can put in front of a user and they can actually apply it so that you can learn and that's the whole point of the mvp right you can learn whether that thing is going to be viable and it's going to be usable as you imagine it's going to be i think that's it there's sometimes that feeling of oh because this wasn't perfect or ra receive rapturous applause in some way the project's a failure it's not the case at all is it no absolutely not you know um there's some great examples of things that have been created 
to be deliberately destroyed. So for example, SpaceX are, are, are famous for doing this. They'll develop a version of their rocket deliberately to explode into the ocean. Why do they do that? It's because that thing is absolutely packed with sensors. And those sensors tell SpaceX about how that flight path has worked, how their stabilization has worked, how some of the decisions they've made have impacted um, that thing. Right. And that then so it's it, and then that allows them to create the truly viable product afterwards. It's exactly the same thing here. It's just that what you're trying to do is not not learn from the physical world. You're trying to learn from customers, from users, um, how that thing is is fitting into their life and how might you make it fit into their life a bit better. OK. Can I zero in on another bit of the life cycle? Um, you mentioned adoption earlier. So we've talked about the early stage. Let's go further down down the track. Um, because when there's a new product, getting it adopted can be, I think, sometimes the biggest hurdle. Um, yeah. And I yeah. can smile on your face and nodding. So tell me <laughs> your thoughts on that. Yeah, and you're right. And And again, the energy sector is really interesting for this. There's, there's parallels with like the health sector, for example, and the NHS uh, for, for those in the UK, right? Um, which is that um, your customers typically in the energy sector are hugely risk averse for good reasons, right? They're running mission critical infrastructure and they just need it to work. Now you compare that to some other sectors like the app space, for example. Now in the app space, you've got a good segment of users who just love trying stuff because it's new. Like they're motivated that by the fact that it's something novel to try and they're willing to ignore all of the flaws and all of the mistakes, right? And so it's really easy for an app-based um, company to launch something for those users because they just say, hey, it's not really working very well. Here's our beta, have a go with it, see what you think, right? And like the inconvenient truth of the energy sector is you don't find many of those customers in this space. So it can be hard to start that adoption cycle. You know, it's it's like uh, crossing the chasm philosophy, right? You start the early adopters and then your early majority is crossing the chasm. But if you can't find early adopters to test this thing out, then um, you're never going to get it stable enough that you can start crossing the chasm to the early majority, right? Um, so how does an energy company overcome this? You know, there's no magic bullet here, but basically what you've got to get to is find your most loyal customers and have a conversation with them about the fact that um, you'd like to get closer with them on some of the innovation that you're working on. Yep. So what you're, what you're doing in that moment is you're recruiting them into your development cycle. Mm -hmm. So there's an openness that you have to get to there, which can feel a little bit uncomfortable for organizations that haven't worked with this before. Organize, you know, some organizations constantly live in that mode of, I have to come to market absolutely perfect for anyone to listen. Like I have to be super polished to even be in the room. And that is true. If you're talking about them buying something that they're going to immediately apply to their mainstream infrastructure, like no doubt, because they're so risk averse, right? But there's a trick that's being missed there, which is just to have a separate conversation with them. And it won't work with every customer, 
but you, you'll typically know the ones that would be open to this stuff, which says, we would like to give you an early preview on what's coming next. We'd like you to see that stuff before it's preformed, and we'd like to talk about where we might be able to test this with you, right? Um, and guess what? In that moment, they're then becoming an early adopter. And it's going to feel and look different for them and for you. So you'll have to take them on a bit of a journey on that stuff as well about what to expect from it. But what you, the benefit you get from that is you've already signed that customer up for that product before you've even brought it to market. And you've had an opportunity to test it in a controlled environment and make sure that it's truly something that's adding value. But, you know, and, and really de-risk then that product being correct for your, for your earlier majority. I, I completely agree. I see this at the moment a lot in um, the energy production market and where there are a number of tech companies, you know, who've built the little widget, built the built the clever thing, um, and their way in is to is 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 to do these kind of um early adoption trials, test innovation campaigns. And to be fair, the big developers and operators, you're you're right, Matt, they are very risk averse. But they have got digitization teams. They have got an innovation lead. There are people and and whole departments responsible for pulling that through because they recognise that they also can't stand still and they need to be, um, you know, optimising the output and innovating. And you know, things are getting bigger. Things are getting further out at sea for offshore wind, for example. You know, the the old ways of working don't stack anymore. So there's that balance, um, and then it's very formal driven because then if you do do the trial with with one of them, then you can take that round the others and say actually, you know. We've got something you can come and see, come and have a look at. Um, I, I think that that is that is definitely the way in. Um, yeah, a lot of what we talked about has been great. You mentioned magic bullets and and, and some really good concepts. Um, but at a practical level, you know, you're in there working with some really big businesses. There must be some sort of behavioural changes you'd love to see going on, or that would kind of help you sort of sort of move faster. What 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 kind of behaviours would you like to see less of or what people like to see a little bit more of um without naming any names or dropping anyone <laughs> i won't name names so there's a great infographic out there uh and it's called the dangerous animals of product management tell me about the dangerous animals all right so um you you've got uh these are all cognitive dysfunctions that's the way to think about it and and what this says is um here is how many organizations shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to product and you know working towards a culture that is able to overcome these things is the best thing that that can be done right so the first one is one that i think a lot of people know anyway it's, it's the hippo right as in the highest paid person's opinion in the room yeah. now if you've got that person in the room um and they're saying we are building this because I said so. The thing to observe there is that is a super high risk strategy. Why is it high risk? Because that person who has the opinion about the product isn't the customer of that product. And the customer's perspective of the world is probably completely different from that person. And the best product teams spend a huge chunk of their time just understanding the worldview of the customer and understanding how to really add value to them. So if that stuff, if if the genesis of ideas is not coming from understanding users, then you're building something 
that you have absolutely no confidence is actually going to survive in the real world. Wholeheartedly agree with that. Right. Oh, you know that animal. All right. Uh, zebra. Zero evidence, but really arrogant. Kind of related to the hippo. Um, so this one is saying um, that they're making all their decisions with their gut. Yeah. So gut feel, this is the correct thing. Now, the balance to this one is there. there is a lot to be said about experience. Experience is wonderful, right? Experience helps us speed up. It helps us avoid mistakes that, you know, folks who don't have experience um, would, would be making. So it's a competitive advantage if you think of it like that. But if your only model is gut instinct and you're not collecting data and evidence about things, then you're falling into the same trap as the hippo. Um, next one, wolf works on latest fire. So this one is uh, saying, you know, that um, the first thing we do in the morning is check the emails and see what uh, thing it is that's burning the most. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, something we're all guilty of time to time again. Um, it can be a it can be a symptom of a culture where managers aren't trusting teams. And so that team knows if they don't jump on that thing, it's just going to explode and they're going to end up having to explain it 10 times. I once worked for someone who used to love putting oil in the fire between two and three in the morning on email. And you could just see it just explode a few hours later. It was it was wild. Right. Right. Yeah. No wolves, thank you. <laughs> um, kind of the next one is is Rhino which is kind of like wolf. So rhino is really high value, new opportunity. So this one is, Shiny. we need to make all these changes to our product to land this customer, right? And um, it's a trap that particularly affects B2B organizations where, you know, they're not dealing with 10,000 customers, they're dealing with 10. Um, and, you know, they're constantly asking those teams to activate the sale rather than build a scalable product. And if they spend their whole time doing that, they've basically turned their business into a project agency rather than a product. This this is very close to my heart, this one, because one of the challenges I have in, in, in my own consulting is persuading very bright people who probably could make that other thing to stick to the current things that they are making or developing you know is that balance between okay that is that's a goal let's let's look into that new thing and the no goal no we need to keep 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 doing what we're doing and um it can be really hard especially when you're dealing with people who are super smart and really inspired and, and want to go and solve all the problems in the world it's tricky yeah. one. it's hard and I, I posted about this on linkedin a few weeks ago that um i really empathize with this because People who who tell leaders to um, that this, it's it's simple. You just you just need to build the scalable thing. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're typically people who've not worked in a situation where they're trying to bring something to market. And you know, the the reality is that your first product that you're creating, particularly, probably does need a bit of additional work because it's not quite 
is sure. your first customer is your first real world application, right? So there's a few gaps to be filled in. You might as well fill those gaps quickly with just what that customer needs, right? Um, so there's that in there, and that's fine. Like that is fine because you've still built the heart of a product and you're still taking the heart of a product to market. Where it starts to cross the line is where that's the only thing you do. And you know, the test is if your teams are spending more than 30 or 40% of their time activating sales, then you're starting to tip into a rhino culture. Interesting. Okay, go on, give us one more. And I want to ask you another question. All right, all right. Um, yak. Tell me about the yak. Yet another KPI. Sweet. So here you have uh, businesses that feel that control is when you have a hundred KPIs that you're monitoring, and a huge amount of time of the business goes into agreeing those KPIs. My God, that. I mean, I've spent a lot of years in the agency world. This one just talks talks to me big time. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, let's talk about why that's a challenge, right? It's a challenge because you don't need all those KPIs. What's the point of a KPI? A KPI is telling you whether you're on track, right? And so what what's helpful for those organizations to get to is if you were forced to only choose one KPI that proved that you were on track, what would that KPI be? And recognize that all those other KPIs are broadly second fiddle to that most important KPI. So here you have an organization that needs to get much sharper about what it is they're trying to achieve, like what's the goal, what's the ambition, and what's that like um, smoking gun, what's that? undeniable proof that they're actually achieving it all the other kpis are helpful to have in a database somewhere for research for the team if they're trying to figure out what's going on for example it's just not something that needs to be discussed on a daily basis when you're trying to keep a team focused on a common goal you know oh listen and for me it was almost well you've got all these kpis you then you then fill out the spreadsheet you end up at the end of the month and then nothing happens so right. what, what was the point yeah we're just meeting to discuss the KPIs yeah. and not adding any value to anyone. Yeah, and frown at each other and go, mm, need to sell more stuff. Great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we could have, that's a whole other podcast, I think, you know, let's 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 not go further down that road because you'll set me off on one. Um, I really enjoyed our chat today. Um, there's one more question I was keen to ask you, particularly as someone who has worked for the big, some of the biggest corporates in the world at GE, and also set up on your own in the last in the last well be nearly be nearly three years in a few weeks yeah. time um if you were talking to your younger self who was wanting to get into product what one piece of advice would you give them yeah that's really interesting that one um and it is something i think about i th i think one of the one of the things to know about me when i was very early on in my career is um I had near crippling imposter syndrome. Like, did not think I was good enough. Um, and actually, you know, one of the <laughs> one of the inconvenient truths about imposter syndrome is it can be a, a massive motivator, um, an action maker. So, because I didn't feel good enough, I was 
burning crazy hours and, and taking on enormous scope inside the GE to try and prove my worth. Mm -hmm. um, and just constantly anxious about whether I was good enough. So, you know, I think I think there was probably a cleaner path for me to take that didn't require me compromising my mental health. Um, and it, it, it would just have been to, to you know, that would be the advice to myself sitting here today is, you know, every, it's, it's that thing of like everyone else is feeling like that too you know like like everyone's winging like everyone it. it i saw someone post it the other day and it got loads of likes from really senior people i was like good well done yeah yeah, yeah i'm such a huge promoter of um mental health now and support for everybody in a business so you know all backgrounds um all levels of neurodiversity as well you know i think a, a business has a lot of responsibility to to nurture the right environment for people and um it should be a huge piece of what you should be focused on as a leader is are your people being geared for success um and you know if not how could you get around that and 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 not just that but kindness to yourself as well and sort of you know particularly for folks that are just coming into this world you're hitting this wall of information and noise and pace and panic yeah. and you're trying to like pick up and run at the same time and, and you you know for me at least I was constantly feeling like I was not doing enough to help this to help this business and help the people around me what, one person on their own junior engineer couldn't change the direction of GE you shot <laughs> right yeah. right yeah yeah cool all right then. Well, look, Matt. Thank you. I think that's been absolutely fantastic. I now understand what a product person does. So selfishly, well, I've found this useful, um, and I'm going to go away and find that infographic about the dangerous animals because um, I just think that sounds ace. Um, but no, thank you. I think it's been really, really insightful, and um, welcome you coming along. Hope you've enjoyed it, and um, for everyone listening, um, until next time. Um, that's it. Thank you very much. All right, thank you.